Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, January 14th, 2014, 1-14-14. You know what it means? Nothing. <laughs> it's just the numbers for the date. I'm looking forward to today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Good interview and an encore presentation of a classic lecture that is worth listening to again details in just a second. Let's finish the intro here and we'll get into it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, one of the most important things that Christians need to understand is rightly understand the difference between law and gospel. I'm not talking about law as in civil law, like, you know, American Constitution. I'm talking about God's law, the God's law that tells us to love God with all of our hearts, to love our neighbors as ourselves. What is its function, proper use, and what happens when you misuse it, misapply it, and misunderstand it? And what is the impact that it has on the Christian faith and Christian sanctification? And so for today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, I invited Tullian Tavidian on the program, and uh, we spent an hour on the phone today together talking about his book, One Way Love. But keep this in mind. Uh, we don't actually get into one-way love proper until maybe the last third or last quarter of the interview. I, you know, since I had Tullian on the uh, on the program, I really wanted to take the time to re- rewind the tape in his own life, and 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 we have some common ground. Uh, it, let's just put it that way: we have a lot of common ground. Um, you know, regarding you know. F- crashing and wrecking our own Christian faith um, as a result of works righteousness and a complete misunderstanding of the proper role of the gospel as it pertains to Christians. And so as a result of having some of this common ground, I wanted him to share some of what happened to him and where the aha moment was for him when he began to understand the right distinctions between law and gospel. And in the course of the conversation, I share you know my experiences as well, because I think it will help you. And then, um, and, and then once... I'm done with that. We'll take, you know, actually, we'll take a break in the middle of the interview. We'll finish the interview. And then in hour number two, we're going to play for you uninterrupted a classic lecture that we reference here from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith. But it's been a few years since we've actually played it on the air. 
and it's Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's lecture, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. Now, if it's been a while since you've heard this, it's worth hearing again. It is, you know, truly amazing that good resources can be listened to over and over and over again. And, you know, I, I never pass up an opportunity to hear the gospel well stated. Um, and those of you who are fairly new to the program and have never heard uh, Dr. Rosenblatt's lecture, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, this is one of those lectures that is a game changer. That's probably the best way that I can put it. Now, um, all of that being said, the other thing I want to make clear is that if you visit the fightingforthefaith.com website, fightingforthefaith.com, starting today, we have made Tullian's uh, book, One Way Love, our featured book at at our website. So if you would like to get – after hearing the the interview with Tullian and you're interested and want to know more about this theology, proper distinction of law and gospel, and – how we all have this amazing innate ability to uh, involve ourselves in self-salvation projects and what the cure for that is, uh, and you want to read this book, visit fightingforthefaith.com and click on uh, the link that we have provided there for uh, the featured book, and you can you can purchase it in Kindle or, or purchase, it, uh, purchase it in analog paper. Does anyone do that anymore? <laughs> I'm joking. I know a lot of people are, you know, I, a lot of a lot of my recent uh, book purchases have all been, you know, Kindle or Logos or, you know, all digital. So um, it's kind of fascinating. It makes it easier to move. That's for sure. You know, because if I had everything in paper, um, then, you know, I would need more bookshelves and more room. And I don't have a lot of that anyway. So uh, without any further ado, here is my interview earlier with Tully and Tavigian regarding his book, One Way Love. All right, on the line I have uh, Tullian Chavigian, and uh, he's here to talk about his uh, latest book, One Way Love. But uh, rather than talking about the book, what I really wanted to do was talk with Tullian about his journey from kind of confused law, gospel, evangelical legalism, kind of in a tacit way, uh, to his journey to understanding the gospel and finding the gospel and and uh, where he is now and how how that is comforting him today in his Christian faith. Uh, Tullian, thank you for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, it, i got to admit, this interview is like long overdue. <laughs> I agree. Uh, I, well, I was never invited before this. Yeah, uh, yeah well, <laughs> I, I, I'll admit, I, I probably had some, you know, some feelings of self-worth and doubt regarding my self-worth. And so, you know, I, I had I had to muster up some audacious faith and pray a sun stand still prayer before I asked you to come on the program. <laughs> so, Well, listen, I'm here now and happy to be. Thanks for having me. All right. Tullian, you know, I, I love your book. I appreciate the fact that your publisher sent me an advanced copy and I was able to read it. And uh, I, I've actually uh, listened to a few of your recent sermons, and um, the the thing that fascinates me, and the thing I really want to talk about, is is that in in li- hearing you tell your story, you and I have a lot of uh, in common uh, in the fact that we we grew up kind of in the same era, you know, eighties, uh, early nineties. Although I, I think I'm I, I'm a few years older than you, and of course I'm not nearly as good looking, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, we, that same era that we grew up in, um, in a recent sermon, you talk about kind of a, a tacit legalism that doesn't explicitly say 
that you have to earn your salvation. But all of the messages seem to be geared along those lines. Um, in, in, back in the in, in the 80s, I specifically remember in, in, in the church that I went to, over and again, you get these messages, you know, the rapture is going to come. Are you ready for Jesus's return? And you're constantly looking inward on yourself to see if you're somehow worthy of salvation, although they wouldn't explicitly say um, you have to save yourself. Everything gears along those lines, and um, and it, it, Christianity then turns into this this constant chasing of your tail and managing your sin. But it seemed like for me, the more I tried to manage my sin, the more out of control my sin would get. And uh, it, it nearly led me to the point of uh, becoming an atheist. I, I can't. I really. There was a time when atheism seemed like a, a plausible uh, way to go for me because you know I I just I couldn't ever measure up because God's law you know it says be perfect as your Father in heaven is is perfect and I I never even came close to perfection. In fact, the more I tried, it seemed like the farther away from it that I got. And in listening to you preach and reading your book, I think you've had similar experiences. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in church, and I grew up in a remarkable Christian family, and God gave me a remarkable Christian heritage, and I went to, you know, conservative, Bible-believing churches my whole life, um, and, you know, churches where the Bible was uh, held in very high esteem, high view of Scripture, all of those things. And I think for me, growing up, for whatever reason, and it wasn't that this was explicitly stated as much as it was sort of implicitly caught by hearers, this idea that the gospel was for people outside the church. Mm -hmm. The gospel was synonymous with evangelism only. The gospel was for non-Christians, and that once God uses the gospel to save you, he then, once you become a Christian, moves you beyond the gospel into something different. And so for me, growing up, I just assumed that the gospel was kind of the ABCs of Christianity um, and not the A to Z of Christianity. And as as I started to crash and burn, I realized that when you read the Bible more carefully, what you discover is that once God saves you, he doesn't move you beyond the gospel. He moves you more deeply into the gospel. And so that paradigm shifted for me, and Mm -hmm. I began to understand far different from the way I grew up, which was basically God's blood, sweat, and tears got you in, but it's your blood, sweat, and tears that keeps you in. And no one would say that. I mean, no one would ever say that. It wasn't like... You know, we're justified by faith, but we're sanctified by works. No one would say that, um, but that was definitely implied. And the reason it was at least implied is because, for the most part, we would come to church and get to-do lists. And they weren't, like, mean to-do lists. Like, I didn't grow up in a church that said, if you drink or smoke or dance, you're going to hell. I mean, I didn't grow up in, you know, explicitly legalistic, fundamental churches like that. Right. But for me, it was more like, you know, here's ten steps to this, here's three steps to that. There was a heavy, heavy emphasis placed on my pursuit of God rather than God's ongoing pursuit of me. So whether it was youth retreats I would go on or sermons that I would listen to, you know, it was all about uh, spiritual disciplines, having your quiet time, lots of questions. Are you doing this? Are you doing that? 
if you're serious about God, these are the kinds of things that you'll start going after. These are the kinds of things that you'll start running away from. And it was just a checklist version of the Christian faith. So what ended up happening was I started to believe, based on what I was experiencing and what I was hearing, that the focus of the Christian faith is the life of the Christian. Right. Which became a big problem for me, because as soon as the focus of the Christian faith becomes our life, we start becoming discouraged pretty quickly, because we can fool ourselves for a little while. But if you read the Bible seriously and take God's law with the utmost seriousness, as you mentioned, be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect, is a standard that you and I will never, ever, ever attain. And, you know, we tend to read that and go, well, that's God saying try hard. You know, we reinterpret God's law as meaning try hard. Yeah. I mean, do your best. You know, God's grace is there so that you can do your best. And, you know, the bottom line is, is if you're continually improving, God accepts that. And I go, hold, time out, hold on, wait a minute. Uh, the only thing that gains us acceptance before God is Christ's imputation, not my improvement. Right. It's, it's not about, you know, this whole thing is, is not about my progress uh, as much as it is Christ's substitution. And I think what happens, at least in evangelical circles, is transformation becomes the name of the game and substitution gets lost in the mix. Yeah. No, I, I specifically, you know, I, I talk about this from time to time on my radio program. I remember that I would hear the gospel from time to time in the church that I was attending, but I would always hear it in the context of Evangelism Sunday. Um, you know, back in the day, our right. church would ha- would hold this thing called Evangelism Sunday. And, you know, you were, I mean, there was a big push for people to invite an unsaved friend or neighbor or family member. And uh, it, generally, Evangelism Sunday was a high attendance day at the church that I attended. And on that day, I, in fact, I, I remember this just as clear as a bell. You know, on one of these Evangelism Sundays, you know, we, the place is packed, and I heard the gospel. But the problem was it wasn't preached to me. It was preached to the person who showed up as a visitor to hear the gospel that day. And and I you know I remember thinking, man, this I wish I wasn't a Christian so that I could th- th- this would apply to me today because right. y- yeah. you know yeah. uh, and and you know the other thing I remember specifically is you know you know coming to you know trying to co- come to grips with my own sinful nature you know you, you hit sixteen and your hormones go crazy and, and 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 you think you've lost your salvation because there's some really cute girl that you you just you know. You know what I'm talking about. But anyway, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like being a Christian, a legalistic Christian and a 16-year-old teenager. These two are mutually exclusive concepts. But, um, <laughs> but you know. You're I, right. And, well, and, and unfortunately, this is what happens when kids grow up hearing that kind of message, hearing the sort of do more, try harder, right. checklist version of the Christian faith, that if you're super serious about God, these are the things that will matter to you. These are the things that you'll run away from. These are the things that you'll run toward. And, you know, I just don't know too many teenagers who are successful in that. And that is the primary reason, in my opinion, that kids are, for the most part, uninterested in Christianity at that stage in their life. Because right. they're, they're coming to the sobering realization that if 
Christianity for good people, I don't make the cut. Man. Right. I don't make the cut. And even if I can convince people that I'm doing pretty well on the outside, I know what's going on inside of me. Yeah. And I know that my heart, even though my lips may worship God, my heart is far from him. I really want to be about this, that, and the other, not God. And for me, one of the reasons I dropped out of high school when I was 16 and got kicked out of my house at 16 and began living just a debaucherous lifestyle. And I remember back then one of the reasons that I ran from God was not because I had intellectual problems with the Christian faith. I, in fact, I never stopped believing that Jesus really came and he really died on a real cross and he died for sinners like me and he really rose again from the dead. I never had any theological problems with the infallibility of Scripture or anything like that. Um, my problem was believing that if I submit myself to God, he is going to take away all of my fun. Right. And he's going to be he's this basic cosmic killjoy that I have to continually appease with my good works if he's going to remain happy with me. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I just can't muster up enough good works to keep him happy with me. I'm tired of trying, so I quit. Yeah, and I, I think that's a you, – you were actually a little bit more sane than I was because, you know, I, I, try, I really tried to stay in it. And, you know, I sat down with my youth pastor. I, I told him I was struggling, and I asked him to come to breakfast with me uh, one morning. And I sat down and just, you know, laid my heart out. I mean, you know, it was a, 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 an overt confession of my own sins that I was struggling with. And his advice to me was just love God and stop worrying about it. And, you know, I, and it's like, you know, just love God, really. Okay. You know, I was so frustrated with that that, you know, I ended up going back home after that meeting and I was so mad. I ended up throwing my Bible against the wall and really kind of having a, a theological fit. And, you know, because just, you know, because my problem telling me to just love God wasn't going to solve the problem because by my fact, the fact that I was wrestling with these sins, it was proving that I didn't love God, you know, right. you know and, and, yeah. and, and so his solution really was the law. And, um, you know, it, you know, this drove actually my um, my wife and I were high school sweethearts. This drove us into mysticism. We actually did a stint. In like new apostolic latter rain, um, you know, really crazy Pentecostalism, um, because you know we are trying to find some way of quieting the screaming of God's law in our face constantly, you know, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and, and you, you think that oh well, if I have these. You go to church and I have these uh, spiritual experiences with the charismata that somehow I can look to that as some kind of assurance that I'm okay with God. And it, as, as it turned out, we we ended up just being deceived and and uh, in the group that we got involved with, I mean, it really turned out to be a cult. And when we came out of that, I mean, I was one foot, uh, you know, one step away from atheism. And, you know, I had to kind of rethink the whole thing. But um, the tur- the turning point for me, was, uh, you know, I started studying apologetics and counter-cult ministry because of what we had been involved in. You know, I, I wanted to t- try to, you know, 
understand what had happened to us. And I, I, I became involved in a counter cult ministry, you know, to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, and and uh, was an avid listener to uh, Walter Martin. And I actually had the opportunity to speak with Walter Martin on the phone. And he and I told him I really I like apologetics, but I still couldn't figure out what the categories were at that point between law and gospel. And he said, "Well, go to go to Christ College in Irvine and study apologetics under Dr. Rod Rosenblatt." So I thought, oh, that's a great idea. You know, so uh, you know, yep. I, I, you know, we we pulled up stakes. You know, we were living in Seattle at the time. Pulled up stakes, moved moved to Southern California. Moved actually moved back to Southern California, um, and uh, I, I, I started attending uh, classes uh, with Dr. Rosenblatt at Christ College Irvine, and that was a really rude wake up call for me because my first impression of Dr. Rosenblatt was he can't possibly be saved because he's not even trying. I mean, this, this was, you know, you know, you know, there was no facade. There was no, there was, there was no attempt on his part to hide the fact that he was a sinner and that he completely was saved by the blood of Christ. And this both shocked me and compelled me at the same time. Um, and it, it's really through him that I began to hear the gospel being applied to me as a Christian, which was completely foreign. Um, and, and that's where things kind of started making the turn for me. But for you, what, wh- how did you, you know, you know, in all of this that's going on, where did you find the lifeline that began to give you the categories of the proper understanding of law and gospel? Yeah, I was, you know, as I mentioned, dropped out of high school, got kicked out of my home, literally escorted off of my property by the police, grew up down here in South Florida, uh, spent, you know, years on South Beach in Miami, just living it up in the late 80s and early 90s. And, you know, if you are young and you are desirous for a hedonistic, pleasure-driven lifestyle, there's no better place to be. There was no better place to be in the late 80s and early 90s in South Beach, Miami. Um, and so I just lived it up. And, uh, you know, and the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, and it was. But when that season comes to an end, you're left with this gaping hole in your soul that only God is big enough to fill. And that season came to an end for me uh, at, right after my 21st birthday. And it wasn't one particular event. It wasn't one particular circumstance. It was just this culminating sense of there's got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing. There's got to be more to who I am than what this world is telling me. And even though I grew up uh, assuming that the Christian faith was all about me and my performance rather than Christ and his performance, I did grow up in a very, very gracious home. I mean, the flavor of Christianity expressed in my home growing up was not legalistic or oppressive. It was hospitable. It was fun. Lots of laughter in my home. My parents were very, very good at showing unconditional love. And so when I came to the end of my rope, um, and I have a friend named John Zoll who says that God's office is at the end of our rope, which I think is really well put. But when I came to the end of my rope, um, I knew where to go. I knew uh, because my parents had so, in my experience, effectively uh, lived out uh, a picture of God's unconditional love that I, I just I ran home literally like the prodigal and the you know in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. I ran home and my parents welcomed me back. And um, soon after that, I got married and uh, went off to college and then went off to graduate school. But but I was, for the first six to eight months, I was a Christian. I mean, I could not hear about the grace of God without being overwhelmed and weeping, literally. I mean, I was so impressed with 
just the radical nature of God's grace and his pursuing love and his unconditional forgiveness. And I was so aware of how little I deserved any of that because I was so bad. And I mean, really, really bad. I make a distinction between Christian bad and non-Christian bad. You know, Christian bad is I smoked cigarettes in high school and got drunk a couple times. Uh, Non-Christian bad is, you know, I went to jail a bunch. That was me. I was non-Christian bad. So anyway, I just was so amazed by God's grace and the fact that his kindness would lead me to repentance. And, you know, he was so forbearing with me and so patient toward me and all that stuff that I just couldn't hear about the grace of God without just being overwhelmed. But something interesting happened to me after I got saved, after God saved me and uh, and, you know, I was sort of living the Christian life for, you know, eight or nine months or so, started, you know, running away from the things that I used to run toward and running toward the things I used to run away from and, you know, changing all of my friends and hanging out with Christian people and church people and going to Bible studies instead of nightclubs and, you know, doing all this kind of stuff. Um, I, I started to shift, and the focus of the Christian faith now became me and how I was living. Mm. And it was very subtle. I wouldn't have been able to detect it at the time. It wasn't like this instantaneous paradigm shift. It was just this subtle shift away from Jesus and his work for me to me and my work for Jesus. And, um, and so I was just sort of being inundated by this stuff. The books that I was reading were sort of, you know, the latest Christian self-help books. Uh-huh. Um, or even some, of the, even some of the Puritans that I was reading at that time, at that time, were in some way really encouraging me to so examine my life and to so manage my life in such a way that I became obsessed with my performance. I became obsessed with progressive sanctification and what I was needing to do and what I was failing to do. And pretty soon the Christian life became all about me. Well, you do that for a while, and I did, uh, and was relatively successful at it uh, in the sense that I was uh, impressing myself with my pursuit of holiness and my practice of godliness and imposing that on everybody around me, which created tension in just about all of my relationships, including my wife and kids. Um, and I, um, I, I got ordained and started preaching, and I had a very, because I was a Calvinist, I had a very high view of God and a very low view of man and had a high view of God's sovereign grace and all of that stuff. Um, so I was preaching sort of a big God in my sermons, but the conclusion of just about all of my sermons during that time was God's done so much for you go out now and do a lot for him. That was basically the conclusion of all of my sermons in one way, shape, or form. In other words, I was ending my sermons with law, not gospel. Right. Well, you know, you start seeing the impact and the effect that that kind of preaching has on your people, and um, not, you know, the, the honest ones leave because they realize, I can't do it. Yeah. Uh, the dishonest ones stay and become pretty self-righteous about how well they're doing. And they become pretty deceived about how much they're sacrificing and all of those sorts of things. And so that, and seeing the impact that my preaching was having, and our church was growing by leaps and bounds. I had come back to South Florida in 2003 to plant a church, 
and our church was growing by leaps and bounds. So people were clearly attracted to this sort of challenge of do more, try harder, because Jesus has done a lot for you, um, which was at that time very telling to me because it just proved that our, our hearts are drawn to our performance and what we need to do. Yep. Uh, we like challenges. We like people telling us, you know, climb the highest mountain and swim across the, you know, biggest sea. And we just, we like that kind of stuff. Uh, we love self-salvation, in other words. Yeah. We're addicted to self-justification. So, um, so I was seeing the impact that that was having. At that time, too, um, I had been, I had heard one sermon by Tim Keller up in New York City where he was basically talking about the gospel for Christians. And I was like, what is he even talking about? Like, literally, and I went to a great seminary, a great seminary, and never, ever was explicitly taught that the gospel is just as much for Christians as it is for non-Christians. So... I listened to this sermon, and I was like, what is he talking about? And, um, and so I started, you know, I, I read some books by um, people like Jerry Bridges, his book Transforming Grace, and Brian Chappell wrote some books on grace. And uh, so I started to initially begin to understand that, oh, okay, the gospel's for Christians, not just non-Christians. And, um, and that's when I, act, during that time is when I developed a pretty close relationship with Mike Horton of the White Horse Inn, uh-huh. and through Mike Horton, Rod Rosenblatt. Um, and those guys just put me on to so many good writers, most of them Lutheran. I mean, Robert Kolb and mm-hmm. uh, Harold St. Bile and William Hordern, and of course, Bo Gertz's book, Hammer of God, which completely rocked my world. Yeah. One of the best books I've ever read in my life. Um, Rod Rosenblatt's amazing sermon, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, was just sort of an eye-opener for me. Yeah. So I started go- corresponding a lot back and forth with Rod. Um, and at that time, I was also beginning to crash and burn in my ministry. Um, I mean, I was, God was breaking my legs in a lot of different ways. And I was not only seeing the impact that my uh, preaching, my do more, try harder preaching was having on people, but I was starting to see the impact that it was having on me. And, um, and so I just, all of this, it was like a perfect storm. I was being taught theologically by guys like Horton and Rosenblatt and all these other guys. And I was also experiencing the crash and burn that believing a do more, try harder message will inevitably bring into your life. Right. And so those two things started happening at the same time. And then I really started to explore the fine distinction between law and gospel. It wasn't just, in other words, I started to believe that the gospel was for Christians, not just non-Christians. Yep. But I still didn't have a robust theology of law and gospel. Um, and so I think there are a lot of guys, even in, in some of our circles, who are all into gospel-centeredness and gospel centrality. And there is, I'm encouraged by the fact that there is sort of this resurgence of interest in this idea that the gospel is for Christians, not just non-Christians. But what I see as well is in that conversation, there is not a clear understanding or a clear distinction between law and gospel. And as, you know, a great Lutheran theologian, Gerhard, Evelyn once said, when you fail to distinguish law and gospel, you end up losing the gospel altogether. Yeah. And so, 
Um, so I, these guys have really, really helped me, and I've received a lot of help from my Lutheran friends uh, and my Reformed friends who trace their roots back to the Reformation, actually, um, in understanding this distinction between law and gospel. And I, I, I promise you I'm not overstating the case when I say it has saved my life, yep. it has saved my marriage, it has saved my relationships, it has saved my ministry, and it's saved the people who sit under my preaching week in and week out from the do-more-try-harder bondage that you get in so many churches these days. All right, we are going to pause my interview with Tully and Tavigian right there, and we're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at piratechristian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of my interview with uh, Tully and Tavigian regarding his book, One Way Love. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. And now, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. Um, Mr. Sunshine, your three o'clock appointment is here. Oh, good. Send them right on in. Will do, Mr. Sunshine. Oh, dear, I've completely forgotten who I'm meeting. Let's just see who it is. Let's see. Oh, yes. Uh, Mr. Brightweight was at one o'clock. Miss Woodhead was at two. And at three, we have... No. Hello. Ah! Oh dear, not again. Sorry about that. It was merely a reflex action. I'm trying to get that fixed. So, anyway. Why are you here today? I was assigned to you again after my attitude didn't improve last time. Did you forget already? It must be because you don't like me. Of course I don't. Uh, uh, hate you. Nobody hates you here. We all love it when you're not around. I, 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 I mean, uh... <laughs> Let's get down to business. We're here to discuss how you performed in our newest Lead Like Jesus program. I'll just pull up the complaint file here. <laughs> Let's start from the beginning. Approximately three hours later. So after you failed to walk on the lake, you then disappeared for two weeks and were luckily found by hikers in the mountain who claim they found you deliriously raving about how you refused to turn a rock into... Fred, do you have anything to say for yourself? But I thought I was leading like Jesus, like you told me to. <sighs> I think you failed to see the purpose of this ministry outreach. There are a few accounts that even I can't even understand. 
Here, explain this one right here. Well, in Matthew 21, Jesus cursed a fig tree and it withered away because it didn't bear any fruit. So my neighbor down the street planted a lemon tree about three years ago, and I've never seen any lemons on it. So I walked over and cursed it, but it wouldn't die, so I used sulfuric acid instead. What are you doing to my tree? You maniac! Get out of my yard! Uh... What? Why is my tree melting? Sir, do you have a moment to talk about the Lead Like Jesus program? No, I don't have time to... Stop changing the subject! Get off my lawn! Stop! 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 I, I get it! Okay, how on earth did you get banned for life from the local soup kitchen? Well, remember the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14? Yes, we all know the story. You don't mean to tell me. Well... Alright, Mildred, we have a large shipment of food that just came in. We need you to direct the men to put it where it all belongs. Right. Where do you want it all? Oh, sir, we don't need your food today. I'm just going to lead like Jesus and have God provide these people with food. What? If you don't mind me saying, but I think God provided all the food on this heavily laden truck. It's okay. My pastor had a vision that this would work. Well, that settles it. Men, we've got the wrong place. We thought this was a soup kitchen, but it turns out that this is a loony bin. Add out! Uh, Mildred, where's the food? Don't worry, this is all the food we need. That's just two Ritz crackers and three dead goldfish. I'm leading like Jesus. If you just give me a wicker basket, I'll lift it up and God will multiply it. The only thing that's going to multiply is the number of bruises on your face. Good gravy! That's not what you're supposed to be doing at all! But I'm supposed to... I know! You're supposed to lead like Jesus, but you've clearly took this too literally. And this last one about you making a whip from electrical cords and chasing the poor baristas from the coffee shop in the church foyer while screaming something about brood of vipers and uh, turning God's house into a den of robbers is, is taking it too far. Well... No! Not again! No more flashbacks! Why do you keep getting these anyway? Sunshine, open up. This is the police. We received an anonymous phone call from biblical repairmen about you corrupting the youth and forcing them to do terrible things in the name of God. Curse you, anonymous caller! I can't go back to prison! You'll never take me alive, coppers! Um, does this mean our session is over? Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's 
featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, confusing law and gospel when it comes to Christian sanctification and trying to renegotiate your justification with it, well, leads to despair and means you don't understand justification or the gospel. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. And of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 and let me thank you thank you thank you for your support we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it here is the balance of my interview earlier uh, from earlier today with uh, tully and tavidian uh, regarding his book one way love here we go now, I see that, uh, you know, you're you publicly preaching long gospel and actually writing about it on your blog over at the Gospel Coalition website um, has um, raised the rancor, if you would, of, of some people within evangelicalism, as well as, you know, some people that, you know, who are generally in, you know, kind of the young, restless, reformed camp. And there, there, this is a, que- a conversation that really needs to happen. And uh, is how does the law then apply to the Christian? Because a lot of people, they get really squirrely about the idea, well, if you keep preaching about the free forgiveness of sins won by Christ and everything he's done, if you keep, that's easy believism, or that's the kind of preaching that will create licentiousness. Um, and yeah. um, and that <laughs> that is not true. But um, you know, you're kind of on the apex. You're 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 really on the the cutting edge there, as far as uh, getting criticism along those lines. And you wrote about this on a, in a blog post last week regarding antinomianism. Flesh this out. Why does the proper distinction of long gospel and the preaching of the gospel, specifically to Christians, actually result in true Christian sanctification as opposed to confusing law and gospel and leaving people with the law? How does that end up actually stymieing or actually working against true Christian sanctification? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, one of the ways that I answer people is, how do these things work out in your horizontal, everyday relationships? Mm-hmm. I mean, one example I give, for instance, is if, if, um, if I'm being uh, short and impatient with my wife, 
And instead of her reciprocating shortness and impatience with me, she's simply kind to me and forgiving of me and tolerant of me. Does that want? Does that make me want to be more of a jerk to her? Or does her response to me of kindness and love and forgiveness convict me and make me want to love her? Right. And I go, I mean, come on, guys. Everybody knows that in the horizontal reality of our everyday relationships, when someone is kind to us when we least deserve it, it doesn't make us want to be mean to that person. It actually compels love and loyalty toward that person. Right. So I go, you know, if it's true that the kindness of the Lord leads to repentance, which, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, was my story. It was the forbearance of God, the kindness of God, the grace of God, the patience of God, which drew me back to God. Um, I knew that I wasn't doing everything right. In fact, I knew I was pretty much doing everything wrong. Um, and the fact that God was so gracious and forgiving and loving toward me um, was what compelled me back to him. So I just go, listen, I mean, just begin looking at how your horizontal relationships actually function. How do they actually work? There is way too much theorizing, too much theological theorizing these days in, in terms of how does change actually happen, how does sanctification actually happen. I'm not so concerned to discuss sanctification theologically. I am, but that's not my primary concern. My primary concern is to actually see people sanctified, you know, forgetting about themselves and serving their neighbor, which is what sanctification is. It's right. forgetting about yourself and serving your neighbor. And I want to see that happen. And so the question becomes, how does that actually happen? Yeah. How does that actually take place? Let's not forget the forget the ivory tower theological theorizing. There's way too much theoretical conversations going on regarding you know, sanctification and justification and that sort of thing, as important as they are. As in, I'm not diminishing the fact that those theological conversations about those things are important. But as a pastor, I'm primarily concerned with how does that stuff actually happen. And I, I told a friend the other day, I said, this is probably too simplistic to say it this way, but I think it might be helpful. Uh, sanctification does not happen by preaching sanctification. Sanctification happens by preaching justification. Yeah. So I was, you know, and I was, uh, I was preaching on Galatians about a year and a half ago, and uh, standing in the back of the church talking to people after the service, and one remarkably gracious older gentleman in our church said, "You know, you're doing a really remarkable job of preaching the doctrine of justification as we make our way through Galatians." My my only question is, when are you going to preach the doctrine of sanctification? And I looked at him, and I said, let me ask you a question. And people were leaving, you know, walking through the, the sort of the narthex and leaving. And I said, let me, let me just ask you a question. Look around at all the people leaving. Look at their faces. Look at these people as they go. I said, based on what I said this morning, do you think these people are leaving uh, with a higher view of Jesus and what he's done? and loving Jesus more because of it, or a lower view of Jesus and what he's done, and loving Jesus less because of it. Yeah. And he said, oh, I think they're leaving, you know, with a higher view of Jesus and what he's done. They're more impressed with Jesus because of what they heard. I said, that is sanctification. That is sanctification. So, you know, this idea that, well, and, and it's same with law and gospel. It's not that we, it's not that we preach 
we preach about law and we preach about the gospel. It's that we actually preach law right. and we actually preach gospel. Um, because, the, it, I mean, that is the law and the gospel are God's two words that we hear. They have an impact on us. When we hear God's law, we stand accused, recognizing that we don't measure up. When we hear God's gospel, we stand acquitted, hearing this idea that Jesus came to fulfill God's law for us because we were doing a terrible job on our own. Um, and that's why I often say to people, you know, um, we're not saved apart from the law. We're saved in Christ who perfectly kept God's law for us. So now, as a Christian, when we go back to the Bible and we see, you know, the imperatives uh, when we see these exhortations to love God and love others and that sort of thing, uh, it's not that 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 law doesn't have any condemning force at all. In fact, the way I explain that to people is those are all invitations to freedom. Yeah. In other words, God's kind enough to us to give us a blueprint of the free life. Right. So you know, when when Paul says, for instance, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Um, you know, or, you know, children, obey your parents, fathers don't embitter, you know, your children, wives submit to your husband, all that kind of stuff. When Paul says those things in Philippians, I mean, in uh, Ephesians and Colossians and that sort of thing, uh, you know, I go, guys, I, when I preach that to our church, I said, what does the home life feel like when the husband's not loving the wife? And what does the home life feel like when children aren't obeying their parents? I mean, what does it feel like? Does it feel like freedom? No. Nope. Or does it feel like slavery? Mm-hmm. And I said, so when, when, when Paul says these things, he's not, he's not using the doctrine of sanctification to renegotiate our justification. He doesn't intend for you to hear those things and go, oh, my gosh, I'm not doing this well. I must not be a Christian. What he's doing is he's saying this is, these are invitations to freedom. And so to the degree that you are even imperfectly loving your wife, you're tasting freedom, a freedom that will be full and final once Jesus comes back. But you're beginning to taste freedom. So, uh, you know, I think in terms of how do we preach this stuff, to, to, con- to preach the law to Christians in a way that causes them to doubt their salvation yeah. may be the worst thing that preachers can do. And I know that there are preachers out there who seem so concerned that, People who, people who aren't Christians are sitting there thinking that they are, number one. And I said, okay, I don't doubt that that's a problem. I'm sure that that's a problem. But what you don't seem equally concerned about is that there are people in your church who really are Christians who are doubting their salvation because of the things you're saying. Yep. Um, I said, that's a, that's a huge problem. And, and when they always go back to Matthew 7, and they always do this, you know, they're so afraid that they think the greatest problem is that there are people out there who, are, who think they're saved who aren't, which is a problem, but that just seems to govern all of their preaching and all of their messages. Um, and they go back to Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, you know, there will be many in that last day who said, I did this in your name and that in your name, and I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And what they will do with that passage is they'll say, see, there are lots of people inside the church uh, who aren't Christians who think they are. And I say, hold on a second, okay, that, that's true. But, um, but look at where their assurance is. That's what Jesus is addressing. Yep. He's saying there are many in the church who say, we did this in your name. We did that in your name. In other words, that's not a passage that says, 
do more to prove your salvation. That's saying you're trusting in your work. You're trusting in your works. You're completely trusting in your works. Yep. And therefore, um, you need to trust in Christ and his work. And so I just, you know, I, I think it's, um, it's an important conversation. And yes, I do get shocked. I, I get the response to what I say and what I write is very polarized because, you know, the people like you and me who have sort of been under do more try harder preaching and have crashed and burned they look at they look at me and they read what i write and they hear my sermons and the letters literally the the hundreds and hundreds of letters i get from people all over the world saying i've i've finally recovered the joy of my salvation because i'm realizing for the first time it's not about me on the other side you know, of course, I get people calling me an antinomian, and, you know, if I keep preaching this stuff, it's going to lead to licentiousness and right. blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I know I get those emails myself too. Um, I, I, in fact, I was rec- I recently had a conversation with a gal who had left one of uh, kind of the premier uh, young, restless, reformed mega churches, and um, and you know, in in kind of helping her walk through this, you know, her her big problem was, you know, she was to the point where she she didn't feel like she can go to a church anymore because, in her own words, she became addicted to her own good works. And it was a fascinating thing that she was talking about here. She says, I can't remember a time when I actually helped somebody to actually help that person because of the preaching that I was under. I was always helping people in order to placate God's wrath or to earn something from God or to have some assurance of my salvation. And so I became addicted to my good works because they were all really ultimately for me. And that, I think, is kind of the difference between the proper distinction of law and gospel and uh, the confusing of law and gospel. When you preach God's law in such a way that you're, that the, you're now focusing on the Christian and their progress and their sanctification, um, your definition of sanctification was taking your eyes off of yourself and putting them onto your, onto your neighbor and loving your neighbor. Well, if you're confusing law and gospel, you're not, your eyes never get off of yourself because you're constantly taking your theological and sanctification uh, temperature to see if you're warm enough, um, and 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 if it, and if the temperature's starting to fall, you quickly go out and do something in order to raise the temperature. And ultimately, the motivation then for good works is your own progress, your own uh, you know standing with God, rather than truly loving and serving your neighbor. And you you made a distinction in your blog post last week, which I thought was brilliant. Um, you talk about the fact because of justification, all of the conditional clauses of the uh, of the law have been met. All of those conditions are gone. They don't have any teeth anymore. And so all that's left then is the blueprint for freedom. And I think that, that jives perfectly with what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6, because here in, you know, in, in uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4, he preaches this amazing gospel to the Christians in Rome, and then he anticipates his detractor, you know, who says, well, should we sin then that grace may abound? And Paul's immediate answer is, of course not. How May it never be? Because sin is slavery, and those of us who've been baptized into Christ have been set free from sin 
And so, you know, you don't, you don't offer your, your, the parts of your body in slavery again. And I think this is one of the major confusions that people have is that uh, when they hear the gospel and they, they don't properly understand what sin is and that it's ultimately slavery to sin, death, the devil, and, and, and bondage, that uh, they hear the gospel and they, and they turn it around and say, well, what you're saying is I can go and sin all I want. No, that's not what I'm saying because you're misunderstanding something here. Sin isn't freedom. Sin is slavery, and so you you, you mm, deal right. you deal really well with those categories. But um, you know the the issue here then is is that bad uh, preaching that ultimately leaves people throws them back on themselves and them their effort actually would then stymie Christian sanctification because they never can get their eyes off of themselves. They can never do That's a good right. they can never do a good work for their neighbor because ultimately everything they do is for themselves. Well, and I call that spiritualized navel-gazing, which is the exact opposite of the way the Bible describes sanctification. If you want to have the sanctification conversation, what I tell people is when we stop obsessing over our need to improve, that is what the Bible means by improvement. When we stop fixating on our need to get better, that is what the Bible means by getting better. It's blessed self-forgetfulness. And I think Luther put it so well... Uh, when he said, and this is basically the paraphrase, you know, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And when you understand what I think is an incredibly important distinction between passive righteousness and active righteousness, the passive righteousness of faith, righteousness that we receive unconditionally from God because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, what that does is it sets us free to read all of the instructions that we find in the Bible horizontally. So now we read those instructions and we, we understand good works not as a way to get God to love us more or to appease God's anger or to secure more righteousness. In other words, we don't read about good works and apply them vertically. We read about good works and apply them horizontally. These are all descriptions of uh, descriptions and depictions of what life lived in service to our neighbor actually looks like. So it basically what it does, and I think someone uh, said this not long ago, a friend of mine, he said, you know, the Reformation didn't take good works out of the equation. The Reformation just horizontalized good works mm-hmm. so that good works are no longer intended to bolster our standing before God. Right. Uh, good works are there to serve our neighbor. And so, you know, I, I say this to people all the time, and I say this in my book, One Way Love. Um, you know, we fight sin not because our sin blocks God's love for us, but because our sin blocks our love for our neighbor. Yep. That's why we fight it. I mean, if I'm being selfish, it hurts my wife. Yep. If I'm obsessed with myself, it hurts my kids. And so if I come to the realization that everything I need in Christ I already possess, it sets me free now to do everything for you without needing you to do anything for me. Yep. And that is sanctification. People want to talk about sanctification vertically, and I say sanctification is actually worked out horizontally in the world, in our vocation, with our neighbor. That's where sanctification is worked out, which is why, um, you know, Scott Clark from Westminster Seminary was the one who said, uh, you cannot 
use the doctrine of sanctification to renegotiate your justification. Yep. Uh, and I just think that's such a great, great line, because oftentimes we do that, and there's a lot of that going on, uh, even in sort of the young, restless, reformed world. There's, there is just a lot of... Uh, and I like the fact that these conversations are happening, because they're forcing deeper thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as simple as justification is what God did for you, and sanctification is what you do for God. I mean, that's kind of the way I understood it, you mm-hmm. know? Um, yeah. Even making my way through seminary. And I'm like, no, justification is by grace, sanctification is by grace, glorification is by grace. Paul said that exact thing in Romans, yep. that those whom he foreknew, he predestined, those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. Yep. And I'm like... From start to finish, this whole thing is of God's grace. It's his work, not ours. And because of his work, we are now free to serve our neighbor. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So um, so, where where to go from here? Um, Now, clearly, you you deal a lot with with these types of issues in the the book One Way Love. And it seems, you know, know, I I detect a constant law gospel theme in uh, in the books that you write. Tell us specifically a little bit about the book itself. Um, You know, what's kind of the major thrust of it? And what we'll do is, um, you know, at the Fighting for the Faith website, we're going to actually feature this as our featured book. Uh, so that if people would like to pick up a copy of uh, One Way Love, they could. So walk us through the book itself. Uh, you know, you know, you know, what's, you know, what was your thinking behind it, and really what do you want people to come away with uh, having read that book? Yeah, well, I, um, uh, I, I wanted the book to be written for humans. And what I mean by that is when my publisher said, is this book going to be primarily written with non-Christians in mind or Christians in mind? Uh, I said, it's written with humans in mind. Okay. <laughs> we all have the same problem, right. Christians and non-Christians. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're all facing the same struggles. We're all broken people living in a broken world with other broken people. And therefore, our challenges, our struggles, our pain, our exhaustion, all of that stuff is similar. So whether you're Christian or non-Christian, there's no distinction there between our struggle and their struggle, so to speak. So with those particular things. So um, I wrote the book as a way to describe in a very existential way um, just our own self-salvation projects. And so I was very intentional about writing to people who may never go to church, who may have never listened to a sermon, but who could read the first, you know, couple of chapters and go, oh my gosh, he's describing me. Mm-hmm. He's completely describing me. He's, and so the, the subtitle of the book is Inexhaustible Grace for an Exhausted World. And that's my way of getting at the reason we're so exhausted. The, the, the cause of our exhaustion really is we're addicted to saving ourselves. We're addicted to saving ourselves by developing a good reputation, by being successful in our job, by marrying the right person, by getting into the right school, by having the right friends, by raising kids so that they turn out all right. I mean, all of these activities that busy our lives, if you really look under the surface, are being done to justify ourselves, to validate our existence, to secure our own worth and our own value and you know, to secure our own meaning and our own significance and all of those things. And that's the reason why we're so tired. It's not that life on the outside of us is busy. It's that inside of us, we're approaching our busy life needing to succeed because if we fail, we die. 
And success equals life in a performance-driven world, and we are performance-driven people. So I wrote the book as a way to diagnose and describe uh, the real life that we live and the exhaustion and the internal angst and all of those things to really show, hey, our greatest problems, whatever they are, are never outside of us. Right. Our greatest problem is inside of us. Yep. And so I apply the law um, very descriptively so as to diagnose people so that by the time they get to, you know, chapter three and four, they're, they're already – buying into the fact that this guy gets me. Yeah. He, is, he, is, he has appropriately psychologized me. And um, I've, you know, I'm, I've, I've come to a deeper self-awareness of what's really going on under the surface. And then, um, and then you know, of course, I describe uh, in a variety of different ways how God's grace and how God's grace alone well, what I and I define grace in the book as one-way love, but how God's grace and God's grace alone is the cure for our exhaustion. Right. Um, that once we come to the realization that we have, because Jesus has won for us, we're free to lose. Because Jesus has succeeded for us, we're free to fail. Uh, because Jesus was extraordinary, we're free to be ordinary. Yeah. Because Jesus was someone, we're free to be no one. And I really hammered all of those points home in a variety of different ways. It's, it's a very autobiographical book. Yeah. Um, I'm painfully autobiographical because I want to show that, you know, I'm, this is me. I'm, I'm a struggler right there with you, and I'm just as addicted to self-salvation as you are. I'm just as addicted to justifying myself as you are. Um, and so I, uh, you know, of course, I, I really apply the gospel in a very wide and deep way um, and show that once you come to the realization that you don't need to win to be someone, that you don't need to succeed in order to justify your existence, that you don't have to raise the perfect kids or have the perfect marriage or have a great reputation or be at the top of your game in order to be someone, in order for life to matter, uh-huh. what that actually sets you free to do is uh, give yourselves more fully to those things. Yeah, I mean, I just... When I look at my wife and go, I don't, I don't need to, um, I don't need you to love me in order for me to feel like I matter. Well, that sets me free to love her with reckless abandon, yeah. regardless of whether or not she loved me back, yeah. uh, and vice versa. So it just sets you free to actually live your life without needing anything from anybody, even from God. You don't need anything more from God. He's given everything to you that you need in the person and work of Jesus. So uh, it's, it, it is a remarkable sense of deep, deep, deep freedom when you realize that everything I need I already possess. Therefore, I am now free to give instead of take. Yeah. I am now free to go to the back instead of trying to fight so hard all of my life to get to the front and those sorts of things. Right. Now, you, you had talked about the fact that, you know, the, the Reformation had recovered, a, you know, a proper concept of good works. And I, I want to I, I drill down a little bit on that. You, you, you take a look at the context of the uh, Protestant Reformation and um, what you know, what the Roman Catholics were doing at that time were literally inventing 
these good works that nowhere are talked about in the Bible, you know, pilgrimages, going and, and, and giving money uh, to buy an indulgence and spring your uh, dead relatives out of purgatory, going and, and viewing a relic. And, you know, we, you've got all of these completely bizarre and mythological things that the Roman Catholic Church at the time was saying, these are good works. And as a result of their emphasis on these man-made good works that were part of the Roman Catholic self-salvation project, the way they had constructed it, um, you know, talk about the, a, a machine there of self-salvation. Um, you know, but in the in Protestantism or in evangelicalism today, there's a lot of the same mythological concept of good works. And when you when you focus on the wrong good work and your self-salvation project, you end up despising the true good works that God has called you to. So oftentimes in churches today, we hear these messages about how you need to dream big dreams. You have to have audacious faith so that God can give you some uh, purpose where you're going to go and change the world and be the next Steve Jobs or the next whoever, you know, you know, and, and there's all this pressure to, you know, to somehow make yourself worthy to get some big dream for your life. And what ends up happening, and I see this over and again, is people who buy into this type of theology, they will end up pursuing these things that nowhere in Scripture are talked about good works, but they become part of their self-salvation projects, and they end up neglecting and despising the true good works that God has called them to do, to be a good mom, to be a good father, to be a good husband, to be an obedient child. And, and what ends up happening, I see this over and again, where you have children who are, you know, they are literally orphans uh, to their parents who are chasing after this big dream to go and change the world, and they're despising their own children and not taking any time to actually be a good parent, which, according to Scripture, is the very good work that they're called to do. They end up despising the ordinary in order to chase after this, this mystical dream of the extraordinary, of some major thing that God has called them to, and they aren't even doing the thing, the, the very real things that God has called them to, to, to change poopy diapers, to help with, uh, you know, you help your kids with their homework, to spend time with them, to train them up in the Lord and stuff like that. They despise the real good works in chasing after these these really glitzy things that are supposedly, you know, uh, you know, the, the, again, it's part of their self salvation projects. Have what have you seen that and and, and talk about that a yeah. little bit? Yeah. Gosh, you're exactly right. And, and you know, I mean, you, you have sort of the health, wealth, prosperity flavor of the of the church, which, um, you know, is constantly, yeah, dream big dreams. Uh, if you have enough faith, you can get the, you know, your best life now, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then there's the sort of, there's the missional uh, sort of branch of the Christian church that's all about, you know, change your city, transform your city, transform your world, transform this, transform that. You know, it's all about transformation, transformation, transformation. Yeah. Um, and then you have, in my opinion, sort of a pietistic version of that, which it's not make a pilgrimage, you know, to Rome. It's get up every morning and have your quiet time. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, I mean, there, that, that was the sort of, that was the arena that I grew up in. It was sort of a very individualistic, pietistic, uh, those were the relics. Those were the indulgences. Those were the things that were being sold to me. Um, and, you know, no one ever said that you need to do these things to keep God's favor. But in essence, at least what was, what was caught, if not 
explicitly taught. What was implicitly caught was this idea that, okay, so if I miss a quiet, on the days that I miss my quiet time, God is mad at me. And on the days when I have my quiet time, God's happy with me. And on the days when I pray for 15 minutes, God thinks you're kind of lazy. And on the days when I pray for an hour, God's really impressed with me and shows me off. I mean, that's sort of the impression I got. So, But in all three of those, whether it's the health, wealth, prosperity stuff, the missional stuff, or sort of the pietistic stuff, um, you know, you're exactly right. Good works become all about me and what I do. And it becomes all about, um, you know, it becomes me, it becomes self-improvement, it becomes all about self-help, it becomes about self-salvation, all of those things. And you're right, we neglect, you know, the, the call to change the world and, you know, uh, you know, minister the gospel to the nations is a great thing in many ways, but not to the neglect of, man, just, you know, Help your kids with your homework. Right. Be nice to people. And what's so ironic about all of this is the people that sort of champion any of those, whether it's the health, wealth, prosperity stuff, the pietistic stuff, or the missional stuff, what's so ironic about it is they're so fixated on whatever their particular agenda is, one of those three agendas, and it it just breeds terrible self-righteousness. Yeah. Because they actually start looking down their noses on everybody who's not out changing the world or for people who aren't, you know, having their quiet time every day or for people who aren't, you know, uh, really dreaming big dreams. It just becomes it's law, man. It's law full throat. And I'm just tired of burdened, broken down, weary Christians coming to me and saying, I've just about had it with church because I never hear good news. I mean, the church is the one institution in all of society where the weary and heavy laden should be able to come and find rest. And instead, they get to-do lists. And so I'm praying for a new reformation, man. I really really am praying for it. I'm hoping for it. Everything I do, uh, say, write, whatever, is an attempt to sort of push in that direction a little bit. Because um, it's desperately needed. It is desperately needed. Yeah, I agree. Well, the book is uh, One Way Love, uh, written by Italian Chavigian, and uh, it's his latest book. And if you are, you find yourself uh, listening to this uh, interview and saying, that sounds like me, I'm worn out, and, and maybe I'm suffering from uh, a self-salvation project, and I need good news. If you need good news, this is a good book for you to read. I promise you, you will hear good news in this book. And it might radically um, mess your theology up in just the right way to get you stop looking at yourself and look at what Christ has done for you. And from there, you will discover the freedom that you need, the freedom that is available to you so that you truly can love your neighbor and not be worn out because you do it from the point of view of a sinner saved by grace rather than somebody who's trying to uh, make themselves righteous by their own works and never can quite pull it off. Tully, and thank you for uh, coming on Fighting for the Faith. It was a great conversation. Thanks. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. An encore presentation of Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's lecture entitled 
the gospel for those broken by the church. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> no, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're well into it here. Gotta admit, I think this is one of the most appropriate things to follow an interview like that one with Tullian. The gospel for those broken by the church. Mm. It is a classic. If you've never heard it, Prepare to have your world rock, but let me do this though. Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today is actually it's a lecture, but it could be a sermon. Comes to us via Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, who is my mentor. Um, and the name of his lecture is The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. It's been a few years since we've played this here at Fighting for the Faith. And if you haven't heard it in a while, listen again. It's it's like an old friend. You know, you'll hearing it anew will just provide a, a level of comfort and assurance, and the gospel is so crisply and clearly preached in this that it, it just has the ability to rock your world again. Now, if you've never heard this lecture, consider this lecture to be 
penicillin for an illness you may not even know you have or an illness that you you know that you're manifesting symptoms of but you're completely amiss as to what it is to do to solve that problem. This is the solution. So let me go ahead and kill the music, and without any further ado, here's Dr. Rod Rosenblatt in his lecture entitled The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. Here we go. This evening I want to address a particular problem, what a Christian might be able to say in conversation with people who see themselves as alumni of the Christian faith. And of course, I'm not referring to those who've been translated by death from what Christians call the church militant into the church triumphant. I mean people we meet or know who say that they once believed that Christ and his shed blood freely justified them before God. God freely forgave all of their sin, freely gave them eternal life, but who add that they no longer believe these things. It seems to me that in the four Gospels, roughly that's biographies of Jesus, virtually every person who rejected Jesus' claims to be God and Messiah, the Savior of the world, went away either sad or mad. First, I'm going to try to deal with today's sad ones, the longing, the having given up on Christianity ones. Second, I want to talk a little bit about the gospel of Christ for today's mad ones, the angry ones. I can't tell you how much it bugs me that there exists such a group as the one called Fundamentalists Anonymous. But there is such a self-help group. If there's any kind of Christian recovery group, I want it to be Liberal Protestants Anonymous or Recovering Neo-Orthodox Protestants or Liberation Theology Advocates Anonymous, or Open Theism Recovery Group, you get the idea. For all of its faults, American fundamentalism at least is Christianity of a sort. Yet still, to be perfectly honest, I really can understand why such a group as Fundamentalists Anonymous exists. Maybe you can too. Many of these people about whom or to whom I want to speak tonight are casualties of Bible-believing churches. Some seem to be able to remain in this form of Christianity for years and years, but certainly not all. For some reasons, reasons which I think are very specifiable, more people than we would like to think leave fundamentalist Christianity. I think the same dynamic is often the case with people who belong to what are called the holiness bodies, Wesleyan Christianity. Some are sad about it, some are angry about it. You might say, well, my church is certainly not fundamentalist. I think mine is part of what Newsweek and Time call mainline churches. If that is the case, probably not much that I have to say tonight will be very helpful to you. I'm not going to be talking much about mainline Protestant churches, liberal Lutheran, liberal Presbyterian, Episcopal, for the simple reason that for most of them, there isn't enough theology left to make people either sad or mad. Make them convinced that they have to leave or their hearts will break. Or makes them leave because if they don't, they fear they, fear they will uncork on some shepherd or sheep and get arrested for it. The reason for this is, I think, a relatively simple one. There just isn't enough substantial theology in most mainline Protestant churches to upset anybody. 
There isn't much of anything left in mainline Protestant sermons or curricula, except maybe lessons in ethics, perhaps new opportunities for social service. As one wag put it, the trouble with theology today is that there isn't any. Many of us have met and talked with the sad alumni of Christianity. And many of us have also met and talked with, with some of the mad alumni of Christianity. The venue may vary, but most of us know or have met men and women who tell us that Christianity once was a part of their life in years past, but that they no longer consciously identify with Jesus Christ in his claim to be God and Savior. Every pastor runs into these people. So do lay people. It seems to go with the territory these days. You and I know them, meet them. You might be one of them. I've run into it in decades of working on the college campus, first with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, later as a professor. In those roles, it has been, I think, for whatever reasons, easier for students to tell me the truth. I think they have said things to me that they were afraid to tell their pastors or priests. I think they have said things to me that uh, were easier to tell a professor uh, such as you once believed that Jesus was your sin-bearing Savior, but that you no longer believe that, or that you wish you could still believe in Jesus, but it's just intellectually impossible. If you're a Christian pastor or layman, you probably have more than once heard the same thing from friends or acquaintances. In our day, there are so many of these people that it's hard not to come into contact with them. There are thousands of them. First, a few words about the sad alumni. Many of these people were broken by the church. I know that sounds harsh. As Christians, it's bothersome to hear words like that. But for many people, this is how they really see what has happened to them. Now, almost certainly, many of us have also had contact with people who have struggled for their whole lives with being deeply upset psychologically. The church, for whatever reasons, draws people who the professionals recognize as bipolar or wrestling up against what they call clinical depression or whose guilt is so great that they are inwardly immobilized, people who are so frightened that just coping day by day is truly heroic. But it's not about any of these people that I'll be speaking tonight. I'm not competent to do so. It seems to me that such people deserve all of the care and empathy that we can muster. But again, it's not about such people that I'm speaking tonight. By the sad alumni of the Christian faith, I mean the hundreds and hundreds whose acquaintance with the Christian church was often one in which they were helped to move from unbelief or from a suffocating moralism into real saving faith in Jesus Christ. They heard the preaching of God's law and then heard the announcement of Christ's work on their behalf on the cross Jesus, the God-man who met the law's demands for them, died for their sin, died to save them, died to give them eternal life. They heard the wonderful message of God's grace in the cross and in the death of Jesus Christ. They heard the astonishing news that God in Jesus Christ died for them, died so that they can be and are freely forgiven based solely on his atoning death. They heard that Christ's blood redeems sinners buys us out of our self-chosen enslavement, they came to believe that Christianity is not so much about what is in our hearts as much as it is about what's in God's heart. And this proven by Christ's vicarious and atoning death for them and his resurrection three days later, 
all for their sin. They came to believe that the cross of Christ was their salvation, for free and forever. But something happened after that, something that broke them. And in general, I think what happened is nameable, at least in many cases. In my Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, we would speak of it as the confusion of law and gospel. Dr. Charles Mansky, the founding president of Christ College Irvine, used to teach a course in Christianity for freshmen. In that course, he characterized the various churches of Western Christendom this way. Rome, law. Lutheran, law, gospel. Wesleyan Evangelical, law, gospel, law. I think Dr. Mansky was definitely on to something here, and I think it is that third point that results in a lot of sad alumni of Christianity. Now, if you're Lutheran or Reformed, we too have a category that if not done carefully and well, will turn out just as destructive as any Wesleyan, Pentecostal, or Nazarene preaching. I'm referring, of course, to the third use of the law. In Lutheran theology, the content of this third use of the law is spelled out in a section of our Book of Concord, specifically in what we call the Formula of Concord. If you're Reformed, you will recognize this category immediately, recognize it as tracing back to Calvin himself. Two, if I'm correct, in what Calvinist Christians call the three forms of unity, the canons of the Synod of Dort, the Belgic Confession, and the Heidelberg Confession. If I'm wrong on this one, not being Reformed, I apologize for an inaccurate characterization of your position. What do we Reformation folk mean by the third use of the law? It claims to be primarily informative, informative for the Christian, and something which fleshes out what is the will of God for me as a Christian day by day. What about the law thundering to us that we are deeply fallen, unable to fix our problem, that we're guilty before a holy God and his holy law, and unless God does something one-sidedly to rescue us, we're without hope, and certainly condemned. That we folk from the Reformation call the second use of the law, the theological use. Luther thought this was the major function of the law in all of the Bible, designed to drive us to despair of our character, our works, our uh, anything, and to drive us to Jesus Christ as the atoning, dying lamb substitute for our sin, mine and yours. At any rate, if we Reformation people do the third use of the law badly, we get very close to the infamous application section of the sermon, so common in Wesley, Wesleyan and evangelical preaching. And if we do it badly, the sensitive Christian believer can be driven to a slavery as bad as any slavery done to them by a totalitarian dictator. If the Ten Commandments were not impossible enough, the preaching of Christian behavior of Christian ethics, of Christian living, can drive a Christian into despairing unbelief. Not happy unbelief, tragic, despairing, sad unbelief. It's not unlike the unhappy Christian equivalent of Jack Mormons, those who finally admit to themselves and others that they can't live up to the demands of this non-Christian cult's laws and excuse themselves from the whole shebang. A diet of this stuff from pulpit, from curriculum, from a Christian reading list can do a work on a Christian, at least over the long haul, that is faith-destroying. You might be in just that position this evening. 
Many of us have friends whose story is not a far cry from this. We all regularly rub shoulders with such alumni of the Christian faith, sad that the gospel of Christ didn't, for them at least, deliver the goods. It didn't work. In a Christian context, the mechanism of this can be, I think, a fairly simple one. You come to believe that you've been justified freely because of Christ's cross and blood. Freely, for the sake of Jesus' death and innocent sufferings, God has forgiven your sin, adopted you as a son or daughter, reconciled you to himself, given you the Holy Spirit, and so on. Scripture promises these things. Verses like, Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, seem now, at first read, to finally be possible, now that you're equipped for it. Or you hear St. Paul as he writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Same thing. You realize that you might have had some excuse for failure when you were a pagan, but that's over. Now you've been made a part of God's family, have become a recipient of a thousand of his free gifts, and then the unexpected. Sin continues to be a part of my life. Stubbornly won't allow me to eliminate it the way I expected. Continuing sin on my part seems to be just evidence that I'm not really a believer at all. If I were really a believer, this thing would work. And we start to imagine that we need to be born again again. And often the counsel from non-Reformation churches is that this intuition of ours is true. Try going again to some evangelistic meeting. Accept Christ again. Surrender your will to his again. Sign the card. When the pastor gives the altar call, walk the aisle again. Maybe it didn't take the first time, but it will the second, and so forth. How do I know this one from the inside? You might be able to tell that I don't have to search for words, and you're right. I was brought up in a pietistic Norwegian Lutheran church. For those of you who haven't heard the term pietistic or pietism, it began with certain Lutherans, Arndt and Spainer and others, who wanted a more living Christianity than seemed to be taught and encouraged in their Lutheran parishes in Germany. But it was as close as Lutherans in Germany, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and America ever came to being just like Teutonic or Scandinavian outposts of Biola or Wheaton College. The Reformation emphasis on Christ outside of us, dying for us, and on the justification of sinners gratis was de-emphasized. Baptism and the Lord's Supper were de-emphasized. Instead, the emphasis shifted to the individual's experience of conversion and to the victorious life of the true Christian day by day. If you're interested in this, one of the early first issues of Christian history was devoted to the issue of pietism. It's a far more positive presentation of it than I would give. If you're interested in what I think is a better critical evaluation of it, they are the lectures by Dr. Ron Feuerhahn uh, of the St. Louis uh, Missouri Synod Seminary, and I think his is much more realistic about what this stuff is and the problems it causes. Uh, see me at the break if you want to know it. They're called the Peeper Lectures, and that was in vol- his is in Volume 3, Pietism and Lutheranism. My church's pietism made an agnostic of me by the time I was a senior in high school. 
The evangelical parish of your youth might have had the same result in your case. How so? Well, imagine a Sunday school curriculum filled with Bible stories designed to teach a moral point with every lesson. Beware Sunday school curricula. That stuff is dangerous to children. One of the happiest days of my life was the morning when, standing in the church narthex, my wonderful father delivered me out of Sunday school forever. He had, with a single stroke, delivered me out of the hands of gray-haired women trying to make me more moral using Bible stories to do it. It was like escape from prison. It again made my life happier. It was not the last time by any measure either. But really it wasn't the fault of those gray-haired Sunday school teachers either. It was the theology they were assigned to teach. It was the curriculum, the content of the lessons that they were assigned to teach the kids. Such Sunday school material should never have been allowed to make it into our parish. Now, even though I'm not Reformed, and I don't speak Reformed very well, let me see if I can use a couple of categories from the Heidelberg Catechism to guess how you might have had the same dynamic in its problems, at least if it's executed badly. Think of the paradigm guilt, grace, and gratitude. Don't you have the same sort of problems we Lutherans had with pietism, at least where the paradigm is, is executed badly? If I'm elect and regenerate, why is it that my gratitude is so small, so lacking on a daily basis? The hurrier I go, the behinder I get. Or, if I really were elect, my life would certainly reflect that fact more than it does. Maybe I'm just fooling myself. Maybe I'm not really elect. Because the peace, the joy, the confidence Paul says the Christian is to have, and that other Reformed believers seem to talk about, I don't have. I'd be lying if I said I did. Maybe I never was part of the elect, and I'm still not. For those of you who are Wesleyans, you're in this mess up to your eyeballs. Wesley's charge to his pastors was very clear. They were called to, one, evangelize pagans, something for which Wesley gets an A in my book, and two, to urge parishioners on to Christian perfection, something for which Wesley would get an F from me, uh, especially the way he executed it. Sunday after Sunday of exhortation, that is, law. If it's of any comfort to you Wesleyans, you can blame us Lutherans for a lot of this stuff. We Lutherans try to blame the Strasbourg Reformed for, the Luther, for Lutheran pietism, but I'm not so sure we didn't do it all on our own steam. Through Nicholas von Zinzendorf at Herrenhut and Peter Böhler, we Lutherans bequeathed a lot of this mess of ours to Wesley. I wish I could say it all came from Wesley's reading of the Church Fathers, from reading William Law and others like Law, but I can't. In fact, it was we Lutherans who managed to corrupt all sorts of denominations with this junk. Not just our own Lutheran churches, but all sorts of free churches, the Brothers Wesley, Cotton Mather in the New World. Uh, I can't answer for Jonathan Edwards. He is a total mystery to me. Um, this stuff knew and knows almost no bounds, and almost all of it traces to Lutheran Germany in an earlier century. If this stuff was done to you in some Protestantish church, I apologize to you. We thought Lutherans might just have been the ones who bequeathed to your denomination, to your pastors, seminary profs, this stuff. If we did, I apologize. Now, for our purposes this evening, the upshot is always the same. 
broken ex-Christians who finally despaired of ever being able to live the Christian life as the Bible describes it. So they did what is really a sane thing to do. They left. The way it looks to them is that the message of Christianity broke them on the rack. To put it bluntly, it feels better to have some earthly happiness as a pagan and then be damned than it feels to be trying every day as a Christian to do something that is one continuous failure and then be damned anyway. Trust me on this one. This is how things look. Now, it seems to me that the key question here is a very basic one. Can the cross and blood of Christ save a Christian, failing as he or she is in living the Christian life, or not? I hope that most of us would say that the shed blood of Jesus is sufficient to save a sinner, all by itself, just Christ's blood, nude faith in it, sola fide, faith without works, a righteousness from God apart from law, a cross by which God justifies wicked people. That is me, you too. So far, so good, right? But is the blood of Christ enough to save a still sinful Christian, or isn't it? Does the gospel still apply even if you are a Christian, or doesn't it? It seems to me, one, that the category sinner still applies to me, two, that the category sinner still applies to you, and three, that the category sinner still applies to all Christians. If you're a Wesleyan and have reached perfection, what I have to say here doesn't, of course, apply to you. We'll give you your money back as you leave. But for the rest of us, it seems that what Luther said of the Christian being simultaneously sinful, yet justified before the holy God, is critical. Is what Luther said biblical or isn't it? Is it biblical to say that a Christian is simul justus et peccator or no? Are we Christians saved the same way we were when we were baptized into Christ or when we came to acknowledge Christ's shed blood and his righteousness as all we had in the face of God's holy law? That all of our supposed virtues, Christian or pagan, We're just like so many old menstrual garments, to use the biblical phrase. But that God imputes to those who trust Christ's cross the true righteousness of Christ himself. We're pretty sure that unbelievers who come to believe this are instantly justified in God's sight. Declared as if innocent, adopted as sons or daughters, forgiven for all sin, given eternal life, etc. But a Christian still saved that freely. Or are we not? We're pretty clear that imputed righteousness saves sinners. But can the imputed righteousness of Christ save a Christian? And can it save him or her all by itself or no? I think the way we answer this question determines whether we have anything at all to say to the sad alumni of Christianity. We Lutheran pastors haven't done a great job of getting across the central nature of righteousness by imputation alone. I hope you've done a better job of it than we have. Decades ago, a gigantic survey of our clergy and laity across synodical lines, ask somebody else what a synod is, across synodical lines showed um, that we Lutheran pastors hadn't even convinced our own members of the sufficiency of Christ's cross and blood and death. I mean Lutheran members who might never have sneaked out to attend some revival, might never have spent five minutes watching crazy Trinity broadcasting. 
The book was called A Study of Generations, and 75% of the laity gave perfect Roman Catholic answers to the questions. When you die, are you sure you will enter heaven? Answer, I hope so. If you do get into heaven, how will you get in? Well, I was president of the congregation four times. My wife and I tried to tithe. For 20 years, we sang in the choir till our voices just couldn't do it anymore. We both taught Sunday school for years. Perfect Roman Catholic answers. And this survey was decades ago. What the sad alumni need to hear, perhaps for the first time, is that Christian failures are going to walk into heaven, be welcomed into heaven, leap into heaven like a calf leaping out of its stall, laughing and laughing as if it's all too good to be true. It isn't just that we failures will get in, it's that we will probably get in like that. We failures in living the Christian life, as described in the Bible, will probably say something like, you mean it really was that simple? Just Christ's cross and blood? Just his righteousness imputed to my account as if it were mine? You've got to be kidding. And all of heaven is ours just because of what was done by Jesus outside of me, not in me? On the cross, not in my heart? Not in my Christian living? Not in my ethics and my behavior? Well, I'll be damned. But of course, that's the real point, isn't it? As a believer in Jesus, as your substitute, you won't be damned. No believer in Jesus will be. Not a single one. As C.S. Lewis put it, there are going to be a lot of surprises at the eschaton. There are going to be people there that we just don't imagine will be there. Think of the non-Israelite that Lewis purposely put in heaven at the end of the last battle. Boy, did that ever get the goat of some Christians. And then he tells him why. He, uh, Aslan, the lion, says to him, I suppose you're wondering why you're here. And then he tells him why. Uh, there are going to be in heaven believers in Jesus who never darkened the door of a church. Now that's no encouragement not to intend, not to be baptized, and not to receive the Lord's Supper. It's just saying that faith in Jesus saves. Saves by itself, nude, apart from works. There are going to be scads of Roman Catholics, people who never listened, not really, to the theology preached by their priests, just believed in the sufficiency of Jesus' blood, no matter what their priest was preaching. People of all sorts who just believed in Jesus and his blood shed for their sin as complete payment. There are going to be call girls, there are going to be drug dealers, maybe even a couple of lawyers, though I doubt it. There are going to be members of the cults who never got what the cult leader was teaching, but trusted in Jesus' blood and cross, and that it was for their sin and for their hatred of God and for their wickedness. Surprises. Lots of surprises. It bugs me to say it, but there might even be an IRS employee, maybe a congressman or a congresswoman. Everybody has some class of people they don't really want to die as believers in Jesus. Those are mine. But to put it closer to home, there might even be a theologian or two who believed in Jesus. Bet the blue chips on the blood of Jesus and nothing else? Nothing in addition to that blood? There might even be a despicable leftist socialist college professor or two. Academics who daily sold out the wonderful American Constitution and instead filled their students' heads with status drivel and mush. In heaven we will meet cowards, scum, 
bottom of the barrel, reprehensibles, jerks, deadbeat dads, murderers, all sorts of rabble. And they died believing in Jesus and his blood as their only hope. Ask yourself, is sola fide true or is sola fide not true in the case of failing Christians? Is Paul's letter to the Galatians true or no? And if Galatians is true, and it most certainly is, but an apologia for that is not our subject, can a failing Christian be saved simply by the cross and blood of Christ? Can he or she not be so saved by, by Christ's shed blood alone? If you answer yes, he or she can. That's the message that's gotten lost on most alumni, most Jack Christians, at least the ones I've met. How many times the law has already done its work on them. Boy, has it ever done its work on them. They need more law like they need a hole in the head. The law was and is killing them. Now, true, Paul says the law kills. He writes as if that's what the law is for. The law is designed to crush, to crush human pride and supposed self-sufficiency toward God. It is intended to kill, designed to kill. Um, The biblical connection is law slash sin. What gives sin its power is the law. And more so, it looks like the law is designed to make the problem even worse. It is to be gasoline on an already blazing fire. Want to have sin run out of control? Go to a church in which the law is preached, then the law is preached again, and more stringently and deeply, and then the law is preached even more. You'll create sin. Think of John Lithgow's portrayal years ago of a law-preaching pastor in the film Footloose. Didn't you just cringe? I mean, even if you're a Southern Baptist, you had to cringe at that character. Drawing the Christian line in the sand at the possibility of a high school dance? Lithgow couldn't listen to his daughter, even if hearing her would have instantly resulted in world peace. Man, was he righteous. In Footloose, Lithgow's wife should have been the pastor. Don't quote me. I could be thrown out of the Missouri Synod for even joking about such a thing. You Missouri Synod Lutherans, that's a joke. Chill out. Or as Phil Hendry says in the ad, it wouldn't hurt you to laugh. You non-Lutherans, all of this is an inside joke. Ask your Lutheran friends later why that's a joke in our circles. My point is that the whole film, Footloose, was Jesusless. No cross, no atonement, nothing of Christianity, really. Same as chariots of fire. Completely Christless. Completely gospelless. Now back to the point. For many of the Jack Christians we've met, the law is all their ears have ever heard. For them, the gospel often got lost in a whole bunch of Christian life preaching, and it did them in. So they left. And down deep, there's a sadness in such people that defies description. If you and I don't understand that, we should. They were crestfallen, so great their hopes, so devastating the failure. C.F.W. Walther, um, early guy in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, said that as soon as the law has done its crushing work, the gospel is to be instantly preached or said to such a man or woman. Instantly. Walter said that in the very moment that the pastor senses that the law has done its killing work, he is to placard Christ and his cross and his blood to the trembling, the despairing, and the broken. Be of good cheer, my son. Your sins are forgiven. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Fear not, little flock, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom.
Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he, when he comes, will neither break the bruised reed nor quench the smoldering wick. When you turn, return, remember me. I tell you, this day you shall be with me in paradise. It's finished. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. God made him to be sin who himself knew no sin. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that faith in Jesus, not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And to the man who does not work, but trusts the one who justifies the wicked, his faith is counted as if it were righteousness. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. Knowing a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Secondly now, let's talk about the ones who are not sad but mad. It's not all that uncommon. I find these angry ones have usually not switched from Christianity to another religion, nor have I found that they switched from one Christian denomination to another. Instead, I find that they are angry at any and all religions and anyone who represents any religious position, but especially Christianity. And that's natural. After all, it was Christianity as they see it that used them up and threw them away. I suppose the most visible examples of this would be men like the late comedian Sam Kinison and ex-Roman Catholic George Carlin. You may and probably do know better contemporary examples than I know. All of us are in the vicinity of people like this at one time or another. Maybe know a few of them as friends, or have at least met two or three in passing. Maybe you are one of them. Why do I say that? Because such people are, as I said, not all that uncommon these days. Now, I certainly can't this evening exhaust the dynamic involved in such people. Again, I'm no clinical psychologist. But I think a lot of the mad alumni also have a nameable history, just as the sad alumni have one. People like this often speak as if Christianity baited and switched them, just like a used car salesman baits and switches a young couple at a car lot. Christians promised them a new life in Christ in such a way that it was going to be a life of victory, God's designed route to earthly happiness, a new divine power that would solve the problems obsessing them. Then, when the promises didn't seem to work the way they were supposed to, the church put it right back on these believers that they were somehow not doing it right. They weren't reading their Bible enough. They weren't praying enough or praying right. They weren't attending enough church meetings. They weren't making right use of the fellowship. You name the prescription. You fill in the blanks any way you want to. Some pastor or layman told them that Christianity was failing them because they weren't doing it right. And often these believers took that counsel to heart and set themselves to trying to do it better or do it right so that it would work. But again, Christianity seemed not to deliver on its promises. It didn't work. As they see it, they gave it every shot and Christianity failed to deliver. 
and then to boot, they were called guilty for not doing it right. These people feel not just disappointed, they feel betrayed, they feel conned, they feel scammed, and they are deeply angry about it. Or take another example. Those who heard much of Christ and his saving blood and cross in an evangelistic meeting, they became Christians. Then they heard very little of that wonderful message in the week-by-week pulpit ministry of their congregation. Instead, they heard recipes as to how to conquer sin over and over and over. Or how to have a more intimate marriage. Or how to raise drug-free kids. Fill it in any way you want. It's law. See, these people often gave up on Christianity and they are angry, really angry about it. And I don't blame them, really. Nor should you. The church has an obligation to preach the gospel to people on a weekly basis. And deep down, they somehow knew that. But if that isn't what happens, they react. I would too. After all, what does the church have for a man, a woman, a child, other than Christ and his work on their behalf? Not much. Not compared to the gospel of Christ preached as crucified for them and for their sin, Christ risen from the dead for their justification, not compared to being absolved, not compared to eating the body of Christ given into death for their sin, drinking the blood of Christ shed for their sin. Is there anything we can do that is of genuine help to such angry alumni of Christianity? I think so. The answer I'm about to give you comes from a guy close to one of those angry ones. From whom? From Sam Kinison's brother. One night I happened to be watching one of those 60 Minutes type shows and it was an, inter- an interview with Kinison's brother. After Sam was in an auto accident on a lonely highway near Las Vegas, he lay dying. His brother was cradling Sam's head in his arms as Sam was dying. The interviewer on this 60 Minutes show asked Sam's brother about Sam's hatred of Christ. And his brother looked at the interviewer and said, What? You think that Sam wasn't a Christian believer? You're wrong. Sam died as a believer in Jesus Christ. You'll see Sam in heaven, definitely. Sam was never angry with Jesus. He was angry at the church. And I jumped out of my chair and I yelled, That's it! There it is! There's the answer from Sam Kinison's brother. What did I mean, that's it? We can respond to the angry and say something like, Oh, I see. You're not angry at Jesus Christ. You're angry at the church. Boy, join the club. So am I. And so are a whole bunch of other Christians. Now here, if I had time, I would digress on how Christians angry with Christ will be saved by his cross too. But it isn't the subject for tonight. Now, this response takes more than a few minutes of thought on our part. That is, am I really ready to say such a thing? And that's not an easy question. For many of us, especially us clergy, this question can be really difficult. Why? Because there's a predictable psychological profile of the clergy, including our closer relationship with our mothers than it was with our fathers. For most of us pastors, the link between Jesus and the church, a mother symbol, is so tight so identical that to be angry with Mother Church is the same as rejecting Jesus. It isn't. But I'm recommending, at least in conversation with the angry, that we, all of us, identify with the anger of these people at the church and that we say, well, of course you're angry. 
with what it did to you, it'd be insane not to be angry at it. I just misunderstood. I thought you had dismissed Christ. Thanks for clarifying. Now again, I know this is tough stuff. It raises questions in us that are not easy ones, particularly for us pastors who were closer to mom than we were to dad. And unfortunately, that's a very high percentage of us. Uh, we're also first sons, 85 to 95% of us. But I recommend that we take the hit. It's not unlike the case with something like the Crusades or the Inquisition. I think most of us don't want to defend everything the church has done in the past. At least I hope we don't. And believe me, the angry alumni are listening closely to see whether we're going to defend the church as much as we defend the gospel. I recommend that we do not defend the church as much as we defend the gospel. I recommend that we immediately cop to horrendous things done by the church. For those of you who are Lutheran, this is not the time to catechize this guy into the finer points of Luther's two kingdoms theory. Now let me illustrate with a couple of particularly embarrassing examples from my own church's history. Believe me, you've got parallels in your church too, if you have one, no matter which one it is. One of the lowest points in Lutheran church history has to do with the peasants' revolt and with the persecution of the Anabaptists in the 16th century. The peasants' revolt deeply frightened Luther. Luther very much feared anarchy as the worst of possibilities. In a letter to the German princes, Luther ordered them to use the sword and to slash and slay anyone who was out on the streets behaving like a revolutionary. He quickly wrote a letter that appealed to the princes to ignore his first letter, but it was too late. The peasants, thinking that Luther was backing them, were astounded when they learned that Luther had ordered the princes to cut, slash, and kill them. They felt totally betrayed. A real dark chapter in my church's history. In a similar way, to the degree to which Anabaptist Christians represented any kind of spirit-given ecclesiastical anarchy, one that had no place for order, Luther unleashed on them too. Lutherans took part in baptizing such people by immersion for ten minutes. Reformed, Reformed and Roman Catholics went along with us in this, but right now I'm just speaking about us. Reprehensible? You bet. Do I want to defend such executions to one of those angry at the... Not a chance. Hated as I might, I need to agree with the person with whom I'm speaking. Same with some of the anti-Semitic things Luther wrote later on in his life. I said that I recommend that we cop. Church is done. We might be tempted to start trying to balance the charges. Mention the wonderful things the church has sometimes done. Um, I recommend against that, too. At least in an apologetics conversation. Later, we can speak about a book like Al Schmidt's uh, late book that catalogs just how the Western world's every corner was affected to the good by historic Christianity, but not at this time. Just let them fire away. But since hearing Kinnison's brother, I don't want to leave the matter there. You and I copying to the evil done by the church still leaves the angry one satisfied, sort of justified in his antichristic state, and still miles from the gospel. If the law has done its work on him, I want next to talk to this guy about the gospel. I want to talk about Jesus' claims, and if I can, particularly about Jesus' claims regarding what he was going to do for sinners, including me and him, on the cross. Now, you Lutheran pastors, don't talk to me at this point about the scriptural truths he would learn in your pastor's inquirer's class about sacraments. This kind of guy isn't going to come to your inquirer's class to learn about anything, including those. He's too angry. Same for you Reformed pastors. This is not the time to start talking to this guy about the scriptural truths 
he would learn in your pastor's inquirer's class about the finer points of predestination. He isn't going to come to your inquirer's class. He's too angry. So what am I going to do? I'm going to talk about the gospel as if it can be believed in totally apart from the church. You say to me, Rosenblatt, that isn't how Scripture presents the church. I answer, I know. But first things first. This guy needs Christ. Christ as priest. Christ as having bled for his sin. Christ as giving him eternal life for free. And in his mind, the church is what is keeping him or her away from Christ. If he comes to trust Christ and Christ's sin-bearing death, the guy might later on deal with passages about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. But not now. To this guy, the church and its behavior are the scandalon, the scandal. The real scandal, according to Paul, is that we are sinners under condemnation and cannot do anything to make things right with the holy God. The true scandalon in the New Testament is that someone else is going to have to satisfy God's justice for us because we are unable and unwilling to do it. To put it in another way, we sinners are in need of a divine mediator. And without a divine mediator, we are doomed. Scripture says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. At the judgment, the law of God could justly declare us condemned. But the gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it on the cross for free for every one of us. If your friend can see for just a moment that the truth of the gospel does not turn on Christ's church, but only on Christ's resurrection from the dead... It might be the first time he's ever thought such a thought. Will he bend his knee to Christ as his lamb and substitute? Who knows? But you will have done him or her a great service. Would that all people who are angry agnostics or atheists were clear that their animosity toward the church for giving them nothing but moralism as soon as they became Christians is really understandable. We would have that same reaction. Believe it or not, that's progress. I've sometimes said to people who reject Christ and his death for their sin, well, you are one of the few I've met who has really rejected the Christian gospel for the right reasons. And congratulations for that. There aren't many of you. But I recommend you keep thinking about it and keep asking the question, did did Jesus really rise from the dead the third day or didn't he? Because if he was raised the third day, that is the best reason in the world in the world to believe that he can make good on his claim that his death was a death for your sin and my sin, and that his cross and blood will be enough for anyone who dies still a sinner. Me, you too. Lastly, we might be surprised to find that this guy or this woman is a Christian. He's just vowed never to let a church do what's been done to him ever, ever again you know a church that won't do that to him again? Don't answer too quickly. There are not a lot of these, no matter what the label on the door and no matter how glitzy. Most of today's churches will just re-inflame his anger, giving him law, gospel, law. Find one for him instead that will speak to him of Christ after he's a believer. And if you don't know one, then tell him that. 
At least it's honest. Mm. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, ask pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>